0: But the reality is that for a lot of people, there is this gap between how they're currently behaving and how their doctor says, listen, I need you to eat differently. I need you to start being more mobile or this is going to have health consequences. That for many, if there exists technology to help them close those gaps, we are all in a significantly stronger place together. So when I think about like the, the prospect of persuasive technology and how it's going to be this thing that saves us, that's
1: what I think about. Hello and welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Sampofo. Today, we're here with the co-founder of Dopamine Labs, Ramsey Brown. As a creative technologist, Ramsey is at the forefront of helping individuals and companies to both increase and reduce their app usage with pretty amazing results. You should listen to this show if you want to understand how addictive technologies shape our behavior, how persuasive technologies can help us to become the best versions of ourselves, and why AI-driven addictive technologies are an inevitable part of our digitized lives. But first of all, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. Over the past three years, we've brought you the best teachers and thought leaders to teach you how to be your best self in a digitally distracted world. If you're new to our show, then the best place to find out much more about us is to visit digitalmindfulness.net forward slash start, which has a collection of some required listening podcasts where we discuss everything from becoming more focused to habit building, cyberbullying, and much, much more. Okay, enjoy the show with Ramsey Brown. Hi Ramsey, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. Um, It's a real thrill to have you on the show today. And I'm really looking forward to learning about you and the work that you're doing at Dopamine Labs. So welcome.
0: Awesome, thank you so much Lawrence. I really appreciate you having me this morning.
1: So Ramsey, let's just start at the beginning. I wonder if you can introduce yourself to the audience, tell us a little bit about yourself, but more importantly, how did you come to founding Dopamine Labs and being interested in this area?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Ramsey Brown. I'm a creative technologist, a neuroscientist, a computer programmer, an escaped circus bear, and an Oxford comma enthusiast. I had the pleasure of training at University of Southern California, where I did undergrad training in neuroscience, and I liked it so dang much that I stuck around for a PhD. So it was a fantastic program in neuroanatomy and computer programming where at the Brain Architecture Center at USC. I worked on pioneering a Google Maps for the brain. So instead of having a a piece of software like Google Maps that would tell me how do I drive between Los Angeles and San Francisco and show me the routes, my Google Maps for the brain instead would show you how to get between smell and memory or memory and reflexes and would show you the connections that researchers had found in the mammal connectome to be able to plot out those routes that information flows and this would be a tool for scientists and educators and physicians to use to better understand brain architecture. So I really cut my teeth on what lives at this intersection of brains, minds, machine, and design. And I've been fascinated my whole life with how we understand humans as biological machines and how we understand intelligent machines as an extension of our own humanity and so my work both at, in the phd program i was in and now at dopamine labs has centered around building and answering interesting questions around those types of problems
1: well that's fascinating so ramsey tell us a little bit more about dopamine labs itself what inspired you to work in this place and particularly start up this company
0: yeah, so I met my co-founder while we were in our PhD program together, an extremely intelligent young man who I knew I could work well with. And we recognized that technology was getting very hungry for very data-driven and solid ways to understand what human behavior is made of and how to change it. So you had authors coming out like Nir Eyal who you know wrote Hooked about how to build habit-forming technology. And you had academics like B.J. Fogg coming out and talking about captology and the idea that technology could be persuasive and designed towards persuasive ends. And we recognized that these guys had intellectual predecessors, uh, people like uh, B.F. Skinner, who pioneered behaviorism, uh, as the giants to stand on their shoulders of. But they weren't positioned to build technological products that would answer these types of questions. They were were doing a lot of the interesting writings on the field and advising and consulting on the field. So it dawned on us that actually what my co-founder and I knew, this weird combination of habit-forming systems in the brain and how to code and how to build scalable systems and how to work with artificial intelligence and how to design really empathetic human-facing products, made us realize that we we could tackle that that we could build a machine that would persuade people to become a different versions of themselves at scale, and this was the kind of thing that apps were really, really hungry for. So that was the birth of what we've been working on for this persuasive AI system at Dopamine Labs and how it's taken us to today.
1: It's interesting, Ramsey, that you mentioned that phrase about becoming the best version of yourself. because. It's something that we see that's replete in society. It's all over the place. If you go to the gym, you can be the best version of yourself. Um, Even at work, you can take part in programs to be the best version of yourself. But it's very rare that you hear this related to technology and particularly persuasive technologies.
0: Yeah, I really think so. I think it's very deeply ingrained right now in our cultural dialogue that you ought aspire to the capital G capital L good life and that everyone is trying to position themselves to be your partner in getting there so exactly like you said brands are willing to stick their necks out and say drink coca-cola because that is the good life and they'll point to pieces of happiness or this old-timey connection to an era you never lived in is to propose that that's happier than what you have today or clothing brands will point to body image things and say, you are going to look your best wearing our clothes. Um, because everyone's out to try to live that good life. There's no one I think who's sitting around very concertedly making an effort to say, yes, I see how this could go better, but I'm strikingly content to not do anything to change it. Uh, so it makes me excited to see that people are taking this more seriously, whether or not they think of it like just behavior change, like they're out for personal embetterment or they just think of it as the intuitive way to be is to try to find ways to better themselves. I'm excited to see that trend.
1: So in the early days of digital mindfulness, we've been really fortunate to have enough to have some really great speakers on the, on the show, such as BJ Fogg and Neil the people that you've referenced. But I'm wondering if you can just tell the audience a little bit about how technology changes behavior.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The most intuitive way to think about it is like this. You know, for 30-something years of personal computing... It's really been the story that humans are the ones programming the machines. So I have a background in computer programming, I will sit down at my keyboard, I will type out some commands, half of them wrong on the first try, and then eventually I'll get this thing to run, I will have instructed the machine of how to be. It is now the case that that table has been turned. We are intentionally and deliberately building systems with increasing intelligence, automation, and sophistication that are explicitly designed for the shaping of humans this is persuasive technology this is what is at its core with the idea that you can build a digital context that people will go spend time in and by decisions you make as a developer about how you build that digital context you can if you know a little bit about how the mind and the brain work over time modify how people are going to behave inside that digital context you can shape the consequences of their actions you can shape What triggers they're presented with to start behaviors you can change routes of usage and user experience patterns that have more friction or less friction Uh, some of these are described as the black patterns that you were describing or dark patterns that people talk about Uh, some of these are just components of you know what near and our team has been calling behavioral design that we can think of these just like other types of design patterns in industrial design or architectural design but that is now the case that increasingly, and we see this more and more, especially in mobile devices, these tools are designed to intentionally turn you into someone else. And most frequently, just to the kind of person who uses that particular tool more.
1: So Ramsey, would you say then that the motivation to start um, Dopamine Labs really came about from um, the theory that this was something you knew about? or was it more from experience? Was it from the sudden realization that you could feel your behavior being intentionally changed or shaped?
0: Yeah, I I think we kind of went about it from first principles. So I remember, uh, you know, like, like a lot of Americans for the first week after January 1st, everybody goes and buys a gym membership or goes for runs or tries to do crunches for just about like four to five days until they realize that they have no habit built out of this. And it's just like, okay, back to being relatively sedentary. And I recall many years ago when we started working on the ideas that would lead up to dopamine labs, being out for a run around my mother's house down in Orange County and recognizing that there were all of these digital tools available to help me quantify my behavior, to help me track how long I was running or things like that. And they had really mediocre understandings of how to turn that into a game or make that like a playful context with the hope that somehow that would make me run more But none of them had a really grounded neuroscience first perspective on how the brain actually does behavior change. And I recognized that I wanted that for myself. I wanted there to exist this very intelligent principles first system that would know how to tweak me. That would know exactly when to give me a little burst of dopamine or exactly when to prompt me to start a run or exactly when to put up friction against a behavior to help me close that gap between who I aspired to be and how I was actually behaving. So a lot of this really was a, oh my God, there's so much potential here for these types of technologies to improve things, to improve the human condition. And the more I've worked with this, the more I've talked to people about this, the more I've realized that perspective to be true. Uh, Because 150 years ago, 100 years ago even, the turn of the 20th century, the leading causes of death, even in the industrial world, were predominantly infectious diseases and illnesses. It was flus, it was tuberculosis, Um, It was fevers of all shades and colors. And it was only through a really rigorous technology of the body, uh, of modern medicine, sanitation, sterilization of uh, our instruments and our food, pasteurization, that we were able to drastically improve the livelihoods, the lifespans, cut infant mortality rates over the course of even just a couple decades. Drastically improved. Uh, But you look at what's going to kill us today, in 2017, is boredom and cheeseburgers that's what's going to kill us even in the post-industrial world and increasingly in the emerging world too it will be type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease stroke obesity and anxiety and stress-related illnesses these are things that have strong behavioral components it is there will be people who who fall from type 1 diabetes of course there are people who will fall from accidents and from things that were outside of their control and it's all of these are travesties. But the reality is that for a lot of people, there is this gap between how they're currently behaving and how their doctor says, listen, I need you to eat differently. I need you to start being more mobile, or this is going to have health consequences. That for many, if there exists technology to help them close those gaps, we are all in a significantly stronger place together. So when I think about like the, the prospect of persuasive technology and how it's going to be this thing that saves us. That's what I think about.
1: I think it's really amazing everything that you're speaking about, the ways that technologies can help to close the gap between who we desire to be and where we actually are right now as people. But um, I'm sure you also know about the massive argument now, the, the kind of massive debate that's going on, about the ways that technologies are being deliberately engineered to increase the time that we spend on them or to increase click rates, the the rates that we click on certain things. And I'm wondering if you can just speak to that and um, tell us about how that actually happens, because obviously this is the flip side of um, persuasive technologies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's unpack some of this for the audience too. Uh, So hi, audience. For those who don't know of me uh, and my company, like I said, Ramsey Brown, and I run Dopamine Labs in Venice, California, and we do two things. We use artificial intelligence and neuroscience to make apps more addictive and help people break app addiction. So we should probably unpack what we mean here by that. When we say make apps more addictive, If an app can figure out when to provide you a little moment of joy when you didn't see it coming, you will use that app more, period. It is a reflex that we've evolved. It is critical to vertebrate and mammal survival. It is an extremely ancient brain system that uh, casinos have figured out how to get right, that um, just for fun, casual games have figured out how to get right. And now we have taken what we knew about AI and neuroscience to build a system that will automatically figure out for everyone how to give them the little burst of dopamine they need to get them to come back longer, engage more, and narrowly when we say engage more here because it's such an industry jargon term, we really mean increase the frequency and intensity by which someone performs a behavior inside of a digital context. So come back and push the button more that earns them a little little burst. Uh, And yeah, so that, that holds potential to be both very good for people and very bad for people. So for us thinking about like the consequences here, And what's at stake when we talk about the distinction between habits and addictions, we tend to think about it like this. Now, fair caveat, it is hard to get 10 neuroscientists or physicians or psychologists or psychiatrists in a room and get all of them to agree on a single definition of addiction. Uh, It's one of these terms that we all can kind of, we know it when we see it, but it's hard to nail down exactly what are the criteria and it's kind of a moving target. But one of the phrases we work with here is that an addiction is, uh, you know, a high frequency and intensity of behavior uh, that might not be exactly what someone wants or gets in the way of them thriving. So we use this to talk about people who have these strong behavioral patterns around something they don't necessarily uh, like or want. Uh, and it's bad about, you know, people say, oh, I'm addicted to running or I'm, I'm a just a addicted to spending time with my significant other. So there's colloquial ways that it gets used, and then there's very serious uh, scientific and health-oriented ways it gets used. When we look at what's going on with app addiction then around negative parts of this, where people are developing addictions to apps they don't like, I think this becomes a responsibility on us and then the community as a whole to do two things. Uh, it's a responsibility for us to do our best to make sure we can work with teams that are well aligned with what people actually need out of their lives. So you know, if, if technology is gonna be more persuasive, can we make our first effort to make the things persuasive that should be persuasive, like diet apps or education apps or fitness apps or pedometers, things would be good for people. Um, and knowing that eventually all of this technology will try to find its way to, own way to be persuasive in one way or another, what can we do to arm people with tools and technologies and knowledge that their that their technology is persuasive to help them break any cycles they want. So you know, having this sort of cognitive liberty, of giving apps the power to help shape people, and giving people the power to push back equally strong, I think is the only way forward that I can see this playing out, where uh, you know both sides have a lot of power in this, this argument.
1: I think what you said, Ramsey, is really powerful, and it really does bear thinking about. Because um, I think you know the response, the the real response that we should be making to our technology driven lives is to really understand at a profound level the effect that it ha- that they do have on us, but also. Um, what we can do to mitigate any negative effects that we don't desire. So I do think, and that, of course, this is the whole point of the show, that um, better understanding how technologies um, shape and influence our behaviours and our thoughts um, is a really, really important thing, for a really important skill, rather, for people to have.
0: Yeah, no, I, I really agree with you, Lawrence. Um, no one should be throwing their phone away. Um, I'm not proposing anyone go delete Facebook or Instagram. What I am proposing is that everyone go find ways to not only learn more about what apps are doing to shape their behavior, so you come in emotionally and mentally prepared, but pick up other technologies that can help you take back control. So we built this app called Space, it's free on iOS and Android. Anyone can get it at youjustneedspace.com. And it does just that. I don't want anyone to go remove the social media apps on their phone. I would like them to take a few moments of pause and a couple deep breaths before opening Facebook each time they open Facebook. And space lets them do just that. So this is an example of using the tools of persuasive technology, knowing that if we can override instant gratification using adaptive stimulus devaluation, we can help people break a cycle. Persuasive technology just means machines shaping us. It doesn't mean any particular direction. Uh, so as long as people understand that this is the new normal, that they are being, their behavior is being designed. That is the new normal. This is what the future looks like. Once we get comfortable with that, we understand that, you know, you can't imagine someone walking up to a pack of, of cigarettes not having at least an inkling that these are probably known to not be healthy for them. No one's going to approach smoking that way. In that same way, I think it's gonna be all of our responsibilities, especially in the persuasive technology community and the behavioral design community to raise awareness that these are the new table stakes of design. This is how this is working. This can be used for thriving. This can be used to extract uh, wellness from people and their livelihoods. The decisions we make as designers about who we work with and how we use these will determine what the future is shaped like. And making sure the public has an up-to-date and accurate understanding of what's at stake here I think is the way that we all get to do this a little more empathetically and a little more uh, in the light of day.
1: Well, that's great. So Ramsey, talk to us a little bit about the tools, if you would, that you've developed. How do the dopamine and space APIs work exactly?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my big goal here was to find a way that I could use variable reinforcement. The idea that if you can make someone have that little moment of surprise and delight right after they complete a behavior, they're gonna do that behavior more. How could I use AI to find out Lawrence's perfect schedule and rhythm and pattern of reinforcement over time versus mine versus my co-founders, find everyone's uniquely? How could I build this machine that would learn to give you the delight you needed to help you achieve the kind of goals you had over time? So it turns out that was that was our, our end goal, and the domain API is our way to, to make that goal manifest. So any app can plug into it. It's Right now, we're getting it down to just one line of code, and then you can assign which actions and which burst of domain you want to give later on a dashboard. Very easy to install, and our customers are now seeing a median improvement of behavior of 25%, which is a, a massive improvement compared to baseline. The people performing the actions more, coming back longer, staying longer, Uh, And being able to know that they're helping their users achieve their highest good in these types of behavior change platforms.
1: So then how does space work then exactly?
0: Absolutely. Kind of the exact opposite. So instead of increasing the frequency of behavior, we're interested in decreasing the frequency of behavior. And it's fortunate. And this is why we liked coming from neuroscience to come into persuasive tech and why we think these things are working so well and makes us uniquely positioned is if you start with the first principles of how behavior works in the brain, and you look at animal models and the history that got laid before us in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there's a treasure trove of interesting insights there. So one that we found is if someone's been habituated to instant gratification, they have that little itch in their soul that says, I am hungry, angry, lonely, anxious, tired, full of ennui, some little blah moment, better open Snapchat. That negative internal trigger paired to the action of opening Snapchat. They're used to getting instant gratification and some variable reinforcement. Maybe there'll be something waiting for them. If you can make them wait just a few seconds between the action and the reinforcement, you not only introduce the small moment of mindfulness into the situation where maybe they get to contemplate, hey, maybe I don't actually need to look at Snapchat. I'm just kind of feeling a little anxious. Not only do you get that, which is a benefit in and of itself, but you actively disassociate At the neurological level, the neural systems representing the action of Snapchat from the trigger of, I was a little itchy in my soul. You can dissociate the trigger and the action by delaying and increasing the delay around when they get the reinforcement. This is an insight that uh, came to my co-founder and his infinite wisdom. uh, And then we got that out to market, developed it. Funny enough, Apple actually banned us from the Apple app store for a good couple months there. It's been a, uh, an interesting conversation with them, but it originally started out that they said that any app that uh, discouraged people from using other apps or their phone was unacceptable for distribution on the app store. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, we kind of said, okay, if that's gonna be your stance, fine. Mm-hmm. So we took it to Google immediately and they led us into the Google Play Store. And uh, you know, we pounded a, a big box of Red Bull and I rebuilt the whole thing into a web app that could run in Safari browser in about 48 hours. And we got that out to market. It's a bit of a dead sprint in the middle of the night. And when we launched that saw great adoption from the community, uh, and a couple things led to another, and we found ourselves then face to face with Anderson Cooper in our garage office here in Venice beach uh, for an episode of 60 minutes. And the morning after that 60 minutes episode aired, so it aired on a Sunday night in the morning after that Monday, I got a phone call from Apple. Say, oh, there appears to be some miscommunication. We didn't really mean to ban you. So if you, I learned if you, if you want to get your app in the App Store, all it takes is Anderson Cooper.
1: I'm really fascinated, Ramsey, by that initial conversation you had with them, um, particularly the idea that, you know, anything that would encourage a little bit of space in between um, certain apps is kind of just, you know, the response to that is to ban you from the App Store.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the idea that someone... Uh, you know, found a way to, without really interfering with anyone's code or breaking any of the API rules about how apps can work, someone found a way to get in between someone and their app addiction. Uh, I think at least for the the development review rep that we talked to, that really rubbed her the wrong way, and so she had the authority to put the kibosh on the project.
1: I just opened the um, the space app now online and it's absolutely fascinating. I really, really love the idea behind it that there is this space between um, us seeing the app and then opening it up, physically opening it up. Um, and it's that space that can lead us to regulate not only our digital behaviours, but on the whole raft of psychological and physical behaviours. And it's by closing that space or minimising that space between looking at our phones and immediately going into the app, that's the thing that really generates addictive behaviors.
0: You know, it it really is. So I don't think, uh, you know, when we think about the instant gratification piece of this, that is separate from people who are explicitly using behavioral design techniques to increase the frequency and intensity of behavior. That is obviously a behavioral design implementation. But even if we just look at the sheer physics here, The forces that are making a lot of technology more addictive, even without intentional design, are the same forces that are at play, just in general technological progress. As your phone is getting better each year, its processor is getting faster, it has more available RAM to pre-cache some stuff, its Wi-Fi chips are getting better, the bandwidth is getting better. Uh, Inadvertently, just because of price performance doubling and the inexorable march of progress, the delay time between you starting a piece of software and you getting what you wanted has been going down over the years. If you can imagine, uh, it used to be the case in the 90s where I grew up, um, my, my family was in tech in the first dot-com uh, time period. And so I grew up coding and I was a kid who was always on the net back when it was dial-up. I remember what it was like to use that. You turn on the computer, and you came back 30 minutes later, and then you turn on AOL and you came back five minutes later. And then you were allowed to dial-up and you came back 10 minutes later. And maybe like an hour after you initially thought I should check my email, you got to check your email. Of course, I'm doing a slight exaggeration here, but the whole point is there was, there was a lot of intrinsic delay in the system. So no one could have imagined uh, in the day-to-day uh, how operationally, if everything worked at that speed, we could ever talk about being addicted to our tech. But as that time delay shrank, now to instantaneous, instantaneous gratification when you open these apps. That is a dangerous formula because the brain is not wired to responsibly handle instantaneous gratification because nothing in reality works like that. So you have these systems that are moving at speeds greater than we have evolved to responsibly know how to interact with without getting stuck in. Taking advantage of the fact that we are wired to do this trigger action reward association. And that piece of it I don't think was intentional. I think that was a byproduct Of just progress.
1: So, Ramsey, can you share with us any examples of just how companies are using the dopamine and reinforcement APIs?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was looking through on your digital mindfulness podcast for the past teams that you've had on, and I saw that you had Cesar Kuyama of One Second Every Day. And we love what they're working on. The idea that people can take a moment every day to record this small snippet of their life that they will then stitch together to have this better understanding of here's where I've been and here's where I'm going and to have that little moment of presence. We thought that was the kind of thing that we would love to help them improve. So they're using the dopamine API to help people build a habit out of going and Taking those snippets, and uh, they, I'm very proud to report that they're seeing now a 37% improvement in how much our the dopamine group users have cut snippets compared to the control group users. We we love working with them.
1: So Ramsey, of course, I'm sure you're aware that there are lots of people, lots of groups that are very concerned that people are spending much more time with their digital devices on their, um, on their different apps that they use. And of course, Dopamine Labs exists to make technology more addictive. So I'm wondering, what would you say to those concerns that people would have generally to the work that your company does?
0: So, uh, you know, we hear that a lot we hear a lot of people be concerned and uh, you know, you're so fortunate to, to phrase it so lovingly. And so uh, gent- genteelly. because more often they have much more colorful language they'd use to describe us. Um, the comment section of, of everything always loves us. Uh, and I'd say there's, there's a few things to consider here. The first of which is that uh, a company like this is inevitable. Someone is going to build this company that uses AI and these neuroscientific techniques to increase engagement. That's a, that's a given that's table stakes. Um, anyone who thinks that this is going to get unbuilt isn't paying attention to progress and uh, in the same way that someone was always going to have built the atomic bomb. I'm not proposing that what we have here is the atomic bomb. Any piece of technology, any technique there that can exist will eventually have someone who manifests it and, and brings it into existence. That's just how technology works. Anyone who's uh, interested in diving more on this about what technology wants can go read what technology wants by Kevin Kelly. Um, I like, The Technological Society by Jacques Ellul. It's a really good outline why all of this has happened and it's mostly outside of what humans want. Technology wants more technology and a technology of the human mind is a thing technology would crave. So we are building it. Anyone else who had our particular types of backgrounds at some point may have emerged and built it as well. The second thing I'd like to say is that we're proud to be building it because we think we've got a pretty good head on our shoulders in terms of the ethics at play here we have lines in the sand of who we work with and who we don't. and It's occurred to us that the right answer here isn't uh, just increase engagement. Because to be fair, uh, every time you receive a push notification on your phone, that actually usually doesn't come from the app that sent it to you. It's usually mediated by a third party who you go to their landing pages, and all of the rhetoric is about increasing brand engagement, or get another 10 percent out of your user base. And no one's flipping their minds, looking at the people who are the mongers of push notifications as like, oh wow, these guys are the devil. Uh, But that's the exact same thing. It is just another behavior design approach to increase the amount of frequency and intensity that someone's gonna behave. Uh, We just happen to be a little more honest about what's going on here. Listen, here's what domain labs is about. We're not gonna try to pull the well over your eyes on this. This only goes well when we can all be transparent. So we think we've got a good head on our shoulders about being pretty honest with people about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we think we've shown good faith here by not just developing the dopamine API, but by also developing space. Space is free. We didn't charge people, we charged at the beginning just to do a pilot test, but you can go download space for free right now and get yourself unplugged with the same level of sophisticated backend that we charge people for on the other side of the table to increase engagement. If that's not a show of good faith, I don't know what is. And I can't say that any other company that would have built this technology has done anything like this. So as far as I'm concerned, we're coming out heads and shoulders above in terms of the ethics play here of being the good faith actor. And then finally, and very radically, I propose that we should want persuasive technology. As I said earlier, the things that are gonna kill us this year, overwhelmingly, are not, fortunately, are not terrorism, um, are not going to be uh, all of these things that we maybe should be told to be afraid of. It's going to be a sedentary lifestyle and stress and a poor diet. And those are all things that we can have a small amount of control over or a large amount of control over, but there, we have more control over them than we do our genetics or the, the geopolitical climate. So to have a persuasive technology that helps people close that gap between who they want to be and who they are is a way that my team and I can help at scale a billion people lift themselves out of where they are now to get to where they wanna be. And it it democratizes better than almost anything. It it goes across socioeconomic strata. It goes across uh, political lines. It goes across um, sex and gender lines. It goes across national lines. We've shown the system to be efficacious in the emerging world, uh, in the post-industrial world. There's almost no tool that's working better globally at changing that gap between who people are and who they want to be than what we've built and to me that is a cause for celebration because it means maybe we get to survive abundance we get to survive this world where we have an excess of kilobytes and kilocalories and kilowatts lying around because our brain is wired for scarcity the brain's wired to be anxious and engorged whenever you see food but that's not what we live in anymore so we need a tool like this um, and i know it's new and i know it's different uh, but that's that's exciting, and we want people to know about it. We want people to dialogue with us and interact with it because we think there's a strong case here for why this is one of the most important things anyone could be working on right now.
1: I wonder if you can share with us, Ramsey, some because, of course, you've got all of this data from people that are accessing the API, but if you can share some aggregate-level behaviors, um, not in terms of the way that people are using the, um, the dopamine labs, um, the dopamine API, but rather just in the ways that people's lives have been improved by using um, addictive technologies.
0: Absolutely. So we've had the pleasure to work with some really fantastic teams over the past couple of years globally to help improve the human condition. So we saw a 60% improvement in how often people walked after cardiovascular surgery, working with a pedometer app out of Southern California. this is a fantastic gain because, uh, you know, that's the difference between uh, recovery and not recovery. Uh, We saw a 14% improvement in loan repayment behaviors in Kenya with a uh, financial well-being app that was giving microloans to to people. Being able to pay back your loans earlier and, and more frequently and with more regularity just by controlling when and how you gave them a small amount of text praise over their SMS devices is a huge gain. Uh, we saw a 167% improvement in how often teens would be positive to one another and encouraging an anonymous uh, social sharing platform. So when we look across the board at, at who we've had the pleasure to work with and the kind of impacts this technology is able to leave, we see people adhering to their diet better, behaving in more financially responsible ways, being kinder and gentler one another to fight cyberbullying. Uh, walking more, staying more active, recording their life, having these moments of mindfulness. To us, this is what a good future looks like. And we're very proud to be playing this kind of role in it.
1: Fantastic. So Ramsey, where can people find out more about you and Dopamine Labs and connect with you?
0: Awesome. Yeah, they can get at us at usedopamine.com if they want to get in touch with me or if they want to find out how they can work with us. If they're interested in getting that little moment of Zen and a little bit of breathing room from the apps that they feel like they've lost control over, they can go visit youjustneedspace.com. It's available for free on iOS, on Android, and as a Chrome extension for the Chrome browser.
1: Well, Ramsey, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Um, I really love learning more about the work that you're doing and best of luck with Dopamine Labs.
0: Uh, Thank you, Lawrence. As well, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to come share and learn with you and with your audience. Um, Congratulations on your, your success with digital mindfulness, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch.